danger is stealing in as relapse comes above the den. It's Hello and welcome to episode 312 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Phoenix, Arizona. I am Andrew Brokus. Sorry ladies, no Nate Mavis on this episode. It's going to be all me, all strategy, going through the Thinking Poker mailbag and answering some of your questions. If you have questions that you would like to hear answered on a future episode of the Thinking Poker Podcast, please send them to podcast at thinkingpoker.net. And if you want to hear even more of me talking strategy, you can find that at tournamentpokeredge.com. You'll find years of archives from myself and many other pros, many of whom have been guests on this very show, uh, talking about all facets of tournament poker strategy. You'll also get access to the forums, which is a great place, another great place where you can get your poker strategy questions answered. All of that and more is available to you at www.tournamentpokeredge.com. And if you want to hear more of Nate and me talking strategy, you can pick up our premium podcasts, the most recent of which is the Weekend Warrior podcast geared for the serious recreational cash game player, uh, no limit hold'em cash game player, I should say. Uh, and we're going to have a sequel to Weekend Warrior coming out pretty soon, hopefully around Thanksgiving. So if you're not caught up on part one, now is the time to do that. You can pick that up only at www.nitcast.com. That's N-I-T-C-A-S-T dot com. So, strategy hands for today, the first of which is coming from Shane. Shane says, Hi, Andrew and Nate. Hi, Shane. And on behalf of Nate, hi, Shane. Sorry, you're getting only my perspective on your hand, but uh, that's better than nobody's perspective. Once again, thanks for the continued excellent podcasting. Never too much, Matt Glassman. I have a hand to share. Hope it is of interest to you. It's from Zone Poker. I'm on the big blind with about $5. Villain, uh, sorry, two cent, five cent. I'm in the big blind with about $5, so 100 big blinds effective. Villain is under the gun, six-handed, and covers me. He raises to 15 cents, small blind calls. I have six heart, four heart, good enough for a call, playing 100 big blinds deep and getting three and a half to one. I agree with calling here. Um, I think it's not a super profitable call, especially in a game where you're paying rake. Uh, It is important to recognize, as we discussed on, uh, I guess it was episode 311, you know, just because you're getting better pot odds isn't necessarily all that advantageous to you when those better pot odds are coming because there's more players in the pot. Like, you don't win the pot as often when you're contesting a pot three ways. I do think six heart, four heart makes enough hands that play well in multi-way pots that it's worth uh, seeing the flop here, but it is pretty close. I think there's a fair chance if the open is to 20 cents, that you'd be best off folding here. <clears throat> anyway, flop comes queen 10 for rainbow with one heart. Our hero holding six four of hearts, a so bottom pair and backdoor. Uh, small blind checks. Our hero says, I feel like I have a straightforward check, and I agree. Uh, the villain, the under the gun razor, bets 13 cents into a 35 cent pot. Small blind folds. Shane says, My hand is weak. But many villains will see back close to 100% in this kind of spot. He can have a lot of draws that might bet this size. I have the backdoor heart draw. I'm getting almost 4 to 1. I make the call. 
I agree with that as well. I think this is another like low value call. Um, I think all the reasons that Shane says, I don't think we need villain to be C betting 100%. I think even against a like appropriate C betting range, this is still a call, um, mostly because of the great odds that you're getting. There's an outside chance your four is good. You shouldn't really be winning too often at showdown with just a pair of fours, but um, it does give you some, you just, you have some potential on, on later streets. I think without the backdoor heart draw, this is actually um, probably a fold. Um, the the backdoor heart draw, I mean, I know they don't come in that often. Um, they are pretty valuable when they come in and it's just because it's a pretty close decision, even with the backdoor heart draw, it doesn't take that much to swing it to, to being a fold. So this is another one where I think, um, you know, calling is correct. I think a lot of people probably overestimate how profitable calling is here, especially against a villain who is, does have a more appropriate C-betting strategy. Against someone C-betting 100%, you are going to win the pot more often with just a pair of fours. But this is not really a... I mean, just in general, it's pretty rare that you're going to be C-betting 100% into two players if you're playing well, and uh, this is not the board texture for it. Uh, our hero does call, and the turn is another four. So queen 10, four, four. Our hero is holding six, four. He says, I have a lot more fours in my range than villain does, and this is the kind of card that I would like to bet out on with my draws, such as king jack and jack nine, so I also get to bet my value hands. I go bigger, betting 45 cents into the 61 cent pot. Uh, broadly agree. It's unlikely that this is going to be a pure strategy. If, if we're thinking in terms of equilibrium, you know, that you should just always be betting here when you have King Jack or Jack Nine, and also, also always betting when you have trips. It's true that you're going to have more trips in your range than your opponent. Um, you still shouldn't have that many trips in your range. Like, there's a lot of hands with a four in them that you should either be folding on the flop or folding pre-flop. So like King Four offsuit should fold pre-flop, uh, I don't know, 7-4 suited without a backdoor flush draw. You know, as I discussed, 6-4 suited without a backdoor flush draw. Those kinds of hands may be best played as just a fold on the flop. So it's not like you're going to turn trips all that often. Um, you are still going to want to have some trips in your checking range. So if you develop a dunk betting range here at all, it should be either very narrow, like the equilibrium strategy, I think, is going to involve a relatively um, narrow dunk betting range. And um, or it, it should be exploitative in, in nature. Like if you think that your opponent is going to check behind this turn too often, especially with hands that you don't really want to let them check behind the turn with, then you have more incentive to develop a donk betting range here. Um, in terms of, you know, what are the hands you don't want to let the villain check behind the turn with? There's a few candidates for this. Um, there are the ones that have outs to beat you, stuff like uh, ace jack, king jack you know you don't want to let them take free cards and then there's also hands that will put two more bets into the pot but might also try to pot control which would be stuff like you know pocket aces pocket kings king queen and hands like those might either check the turn or check the river if you continue to play your hand passively so taking the lead and denying them the opportunity to pot control with those kinds of hands is also desirable and now the downside of checking is that you deny your opponent the opportunity to bluff here and this is actually a pretty good card for him to, to bet again on. As I said, you're not really going to improve to the four all that often. Um, I mean, it's of some strategic significance, but your opponent still should be doing some barreling here with hands that are not going to be able to call a bet from the uh, call dunk bet. Um, I think it's very likely that the equilibrium strategy here is going to be a mix of uh, sometimes betting and sometimes checking your trips, which is not too exciting of a conclusion. But um, I think if you are going to take an exploitive line of, for instance, always betting in this situation, which it kind of sounds like is what Shane 
Dana is saying, I think it's worth talking about what exactly you're trying to exploit. Like, why is it that you think your opponent is not going to bet this turn as often as he should? So just saying, like, I would like to bet draws and therefore I bet you know value hands. I think that's uh, an, an overly simplistic way of looking at the at the situation. If you think your opponent is going to fold too much to a dunk bet, for instance, then it could be correct to bet draws and not bet your, your value hands. If you think your opponent is going to call too much to a dunk bet or raise too much, then it could be correct to check draws and always bet your value hands. And if you think your opponent is, like, you really just have no no idea what your opponent's strategy is going to be, then probably the best thing is, is to randomize with both. Um, that's likely the equilibrium strategy anyway. Um, so our hero chooses to bet 45 cents into 61 cents. The other thing I'll say with regard to donk betting here is, um, I mean, this is a bet size that would be pretty appropriate for having a very polarized donk betting range, um, which is actually like if, if your betting range here is just like King Jack, Jack nine and trips, um, that's actually not as polarized as it sounds. I mean, I know it sounds like, okay, well, trips are the value hands, King Jack and Jack nine. Those are the bluffs. Um, King Jack and Jack nine actually have a decent amount of equity. Like these are not airball kinds of hands and you shouldn't really have too many airballs in your range. Maybe something like nine, eight with a backdoor flush draw maybe goes in your, you know, is in your range here, but you shouldn't have a lot of hands that are close to zero equity. Um, you do also have some incentive to want to bet stuff like, um, ace queen uh, to deny your opponent the opportunity to take free cards when he has you know draws or stuff they could be too or even like queen nine is is a pretty vulnerable hand so you may have incentive to include some other hands in your betting range besides just trips and uh, and, and draws it could be that you want to use a slightly smaller bet sizing here again unless you have uh, exploitive reasons for choosing the, the larger size that you did you know if you think about what are the hands that you're trying to give your opponent a decision with um you know, you're not really giving, if your opponent is holding like ace king, I think betting 45 into 61 is not really giving him that much of a decision. I think he just, you know, gets to kind of correctly fold that sort of hand. Um, I also think overpairs should just not be folding. Uh, so if you're thinking of those as the hand that you're trying to confront with a the decision, then, you know, it probably betting even larger than three quarters pot is is going to be correct um so i think it's worth considering like what's the what's the target here what's the hand that you're trying to present with a difficult decision by developing a donk betting strategy in the first place if it's mostly about denying your opponent the opportunity to take free cards then um, you probably do want a more depolarized betting range and the bet size does not need to be so large or shouldn't be so large Anyway, our hero bets 45 cents into the 61 cent pot. Villain calls quickly, and Shane says, I think his range includes good queens, perhaps ace 10, king 10, certainly queen 10, likely king jack, perhaps jack 9, aces, kings, and of course queens and pocket 10s, maybe a little ace 4 suited. Um, I think that's reasonably good. I would be pretty surprised if anyone is folding jack 9 here, so I wouldn't really call that a maybe. Aces and kings, I also wouldn't call a maybe. Those seem like pretty straightforward uh, calls, unless you're saying they're a maybe because they would sometimes raise, which could be correct against a more depolarized betting range, would probably not be correct against the betting range that you describe. Um, it's worth considering whether he would ever raise with pocket queens or pocket tens, but I think once those hands are boated up, many people wouldn't. Um, Ace-4 suited is another interesting one. May not bet the flop. If it gets this far, 
has a decent amount of incentive to raise the turn, more I would say than queens or tens do, since ace four suited is still vulnerable to jack nine anyway. I'm a little bit vulnerable to king jack. Although, you know, remember if king jack hits an ace, you're going to have a full house. But uh, I, I think we might see raises sometimes if your opponent has uh, ace four suited. Uh, Rivers of six, making our hero a full house. Final board, queen 10, four, four, six, our hero holding six, four. And Shane says, if I check, he'll certainly check by most hands, and he has a lot more medium strength made hands that miss draws uh, than he has missed draws that might bluff. So I need to bet. And I agree with that. I think you should, uh, having having taken lead, the lead on the turn, uh, I think that you should bet now. Um, the reason to check would be, I guess, to try to get in a check raise against like over pairs. But I think a lot of your opponents might be too passive in terms of betting those in the first place, might not pay off the check raise anyway. I think better just do your own betting. Uh, Shane says, I go big again, betting $1.20 into the pot into the pot of $1.51. Uh, I agree with that as well. At this point, assuming that you bet a lot of those draws on the turn, you do have a lot of missed draws that you can use to balance a pretty large bet size. Even facing a large bet size, you know, your opponent uh, probably should and will be calling with like over pairs, ace, queen, king, queen. Um, so I think the, the, the bet size is good. If anything, you could maybe even go a little larger. Villain pauses, then raises to three dollars and twenty cents. So our hero about a dollar twenty into a dollar fifty-one. Villain raises to three twenty. Uh, so I think it's good. First off, that Shane doesn't just snap call here and say, "Oh well, I have a full house." You know, if it's full house or full house, that's under full house. That's just unlucky. Um, worth thinking about. You know, what are we hoping to beat if we call here? What are we hoping to see? When we're talking about calling with bluff catchers, or you know. Just, I guess, calling the river in, in general, if, it, if it's a close decision. The first question I tend to ask is, is there a chance that the villain has worse for value? It's very rarely correct to fold a hand that can beat some portion of the villain's value range. The villain would have to be like way out of whack with his uh, the, the construction of his raising range for you to fold here, even though he might have worse for value. Um, in this case... I mean, is he raising aces or kings here? That seems unlikely. Um, I actually wouldn't be surprised if it's correct for him to do so, but I think a lot of your opponents are not going to be that aggressive in this spot. And I mean, against your betting range, it wouldn't be correct. Like if you're only ever going to have ace four busted draws, or like you're only going to have full houses and busted draws here, then of course they shouldn't raise aces or kings. I think you probably should have some queen x in your um, range. Like I don't think your, your betting range here should be quite so polarized and plausible that he is supposed to be raising like aces or kings or queen 10 for value but um i think a lot of your opponents won't actually do that so ace four suited is the main one i'd be thinking about and you know if that's in his range at all it's going to be an extremely small part of his range we've already said like he may not plays four suited this way on the flop or the turn of course you cut in half the number of combinations of ace four suited he could have so uh, and, and he may not raise it anyway. You know, again, some people are going to be too passive in this spot and are only going to raise if they have uh, full houses. And then there's just the question of are they bluffing? So if we determine that your hand is just a bluff catcher, the next thing to look at is blockers. Do you block any important part of your opponent's either value range or bluffing range? Um, I think that you don't. I think that pocket sixes, like pocket sixes were, I guess, quads. <laughs> quads is like the one, the one hand that you do block here which 
the villain may not be opening pocket forwards onto the gun anyway. Many people won't. Um, so it's possible the quads just isn't even in his range. That's the one thing that you that you block in terms of full houses. I don't think pocket six is in his range. I think that's not a hand that calls the turn. You'd have a much more a much better blocker if you had a queen or a ten in your hand. Like so, it's entirely possible that queen ten is a better call here than six four. Even though six four is a full house and queen ten is not, um, I think that blocking pocket queens and pocket tens is more important than the absolute strength of your hand if you don't beat anything in the villain's value range and you don't really have any important blockers which is basically the situation here then you're probably just indifferent to calling at equilibrium um, that's the way that tends to go and uh, so then you can just kind of make a guess in terms of do you think your opponent is bluffing too much or too little and this strikes me as a spot where most people tend to bluff too little um I think a lot of people. So, and actually, the way the way Shane puts this is probably about how I would put it. He says, "I invoke the they always have it rule and fold my full house, putting him on pocket queens or pocket tens. Good fold." I mean, I think it's the sort of thing that we're unlikely to see a solver do, but uh, yeah, against like real flawed human opponents, um, quite possibly correct. Uh, regardless, kudos to you for uh, even considering folding a full house, because I know that a lot of people won't do that, and I think it's great that you're not just thinking about the absolute strength of your hand, uh, you are considering you know, ranges and uh, math, which is an important part of poker. Uh, thanks for writing, and yeah, that's a very appropriate NickCast hand. In fact, if I'm recalling correctly from the, the very early days of the NickCast, we started calling it the NickCast because of a hand where we advocated folding a full house. So thanks for bringing us full circle, Shane. Next one coming from Zach, whom I had the pleasure of meeting at the Bend Poker Room. Zach says, this hand is from the Run It Up mini main event at the Peppermill Casino in Reno, Nevada. There are about 70 players remaining in this day one hand, 43 advance to day two and make the money. Main villain in the hand is a woman I'd only been playing with for about 30 minutes since I had recently moved to the table. No real read. My guess was that she was at least a competent player based on her bet sizing and the way she carried herself. Preflop. Blinds are 1,500, 3K, 3K, and we're in the small blind with a stack of 175K, which is, uh, what, just about 60 big blinds? Villain is the chip leader at the table, raises under the gun one to uh, uh, eight-handed table, so really under the gun two, um, raises to 7K. We have queen, jack of hearts in the small blind and call. Big blind calls as well with less than 100K behind. Zach says, I found this decision to be trivial. I did not have interest in 3-betting her early position raise. With the hand, I was very happy to see a cheap flop with. Inviting the big blind to call as well was perfectly fine with me. Uh, I don't agree that it's perfectly fine. I mean, <laughs> it's true that the big blind, uh, there's a decent chance he's going to call and it doesn't hurt you that much. Uh, it does hurt you. Like, it is probably in your interest to have the big blind fold rather than uh, the big blind getting to call and take advantage of uh, great pot odds and an opportunity to realize equity. Like, the, the more plus EV thing for you is likely if the big blind folds. But yes, yours is a hand that does not uh, terribly much mind playing a multi-way pot. The wider that she's opening, the more appealing it's going to be to three-bet a hand like this one. Um, I think that as a default, uh, especially as you're starting to get close to the money, airing on the side of playing smaller pots is a perfectly fine and good thing to do. I, just, I don't think it's a, that trivial of a decision, though. 
Uh, so we go to, to the flop three-handed pot uh, 24k, and the flop is three of hearts, ten of hearts, five of clubs. Our hero again holding queen jack of hearts. I check, big blind checks, and villain bets 10k. I did not have any thought of dunking as my mind immediately went to check raising this board as I felt that she would have a lot of hands that she would continue and fold to a raise with even against two players. Um, yeah, so I think like exploitively, that's definitely good. I think you're right that a lot of people will see that too much in this situation and you can exploit that by check raising. It's quite likely that even in equilibrium, you wouldn't have a dunking range here. Um, particularly in a, in a three-way pot. So, well, I'm, I don't know. I don't want to say particularly in a three-bet pot, actually. But um, it, like, it, it's possible that you're supposed to be doing more donking in order to deny equity to the big blind when you have a hand like uh, pocket jacks or something. But, yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're not going to do very much betting in this situation. And I think especially if you believe that under the gun is going to see bet too much, then uh, checking, planning to check raise is good. So he checks, uh, big blind checks, the villain bets 10k, and our hero check raises to 33k. So the bet was uh, 10 into 24, our hero uh, by raising to 34, or sorry, by raising to 33, now we have um, 67k in the pot, and we're charging the villain 24 to call. Um, this actually could be a touch on the large side for, for a check raise. I mean, I don't think it's that big of a deal, but if you think about like what are you really trying to punish her for, for raising or what are the hands that you're trying to present her with a decision, it's got to be just unpaired. Like, I don't think there's anything else that should really be folding to a check raise like this. Um, so I think it's just going to be like unpaired cards with no particular draws, like ace-king no draw or uh, king-jack no draw, that, that kind of stuff. And I think that Actually, a slightly smaller check raise might be the size to use to punish those hands. Uh, not a real big deal, but you know, the the bigger your raise gets, like the I mean, against the very top of your opponent's range, you're well, you're doing okay with this hand. But there's other hands you might want to check raise here that aren't doing so well. Like I, mean, I think Queen Jack of Clubs would also be a perfectly fine check raise if you think your opponent is c betting too much, and um, that's a hand that's going to be doing pretty badly when it's called by like tens plus basically um you're right the, it's equity against that part of the opponent's range is pretty bad so you do want to kind of limit your exposure to the strongest part of your opponent's range while still getting the folds that you want from the weaker part of your opponent's range and uh, that's an argument for check raising smaller um, this is also a spot where i think you want to be pretty depolarized with your check raising like if you think your opponent is c betting all those um over cards you probably want to be c betting like or sorry check raising any 10 maybe even some smaller pocket pairs and um, again, you want to be putting less money in the pot with those hands, because although they welcome the folds from the weaker part of your opponent's range, they are doing very badly against the, uh, the stronger part of your opponent's range. Not a big deal. I might have made it like 27 or 28 instead of 33. Pretty small in the grand scheme of things. I do like, if you, know, if you, think, she's, if you think she's c-betting too much, I do like check-raising. The villain did call the check-raise, putting 90k in the pot, and Zach says... I was expecting her to fold, but I believe the recall narrowed her range to top pair, over pair sets, and maybe a couple of other flush draws, some better, some worse. Um, 
I mean, in terms of expecting her to fold, I guess what you mean is just that you think she's c-betting a lot and um, should be folding pretty often. I mean, in reality, she shouldn't be folding like anywhere near half of her hands, given the pot odds that your check raise is offering her. So I'm not sure it's right. or I mean, it's not right to say that you were expecting her to fold unless you had some sort of like physical read that she didn't have anything like she definitely should be not folding a lot more often than she's folding in this situation. Um, also, the range that you described for her, I would say, is too strong, um, given the odds that your raise offers her. Like, she definitely shouldn't be folding, like, pocket nines to this uh, to this check raise, just as an example. Um, even something like queen-jack of clubs might be justified in getting stubborn, king-queen of clubs, uh, ace-x of clubs. There's a lot of stuff like that that I think she should be looking to get stubborn with. Um, you may be underestimating the number of flush draws in her range. Like, I think it's quite possible that all of the ace-x of hearts is in her range. And, um, you know, certainly there's going to be a couple combinations of king-x of hearts, although you block the most likely of those. But I still think, you know, there's going to be a fair number of ace-x of hearts combinations. So I, I wouldn't really dismiss the better flush draws. Like, I think those are actually an important part of her range. I also think a lot of people just are not going to three-bet in this spot ever. So, yeah, I mean, I think having... Um, you know, putting a lot of sets in her range is, is also going to be correct. Uh, turn is the deuce of hearts. There's 90k in the pot, and our hero makes a flush. So the board, three of hearts, ten of hearts, five of clubs, two of hearts. Our hero holding queen, jack of hearts for flush. Zach says, I was, of course, very excited to continue on this turn card as I make my hand. I decide to bet 42.5k, close to half the pot, as I believe that most of the hands that I range around the flop would have to call another reasonable size bet on this turn. Um, I mean, that's true. I think part of that is because you gave her an overly strong flop calling range. Like, I think she should have some weaker stuff that called the flop that is now folding the turn. You know, the, the stuff like uh, king-queen of clubs. That doesn't necessarily affect your bet sizing because those aren't the hands that you're targeting anyway. So I, mean, I think you should be thinking in terms of, you know, what kind of bet do I need to make to get called by uh, good one-pair hands um, with or without? Uh, I mean, I guess you really want to target the ones without a heart. You, you can't really pick both because the ones with a heart are going to call, be one to call a larger bet than the ones without a heart. So the question is, you know, in order to get called by like pocket kings, no heart, what bet size is, is going to accomplish that? And the way you think about that is trying to determine, you know, what are, what could my bluffs be in this situation? You know, the, the incentive your opponent is going to have to continue with something like Black Kings is going to depend on how easily you could be bluffing in this um, in this spot. You know, he's going to have to, uh, for a half pot bet, he's going to have to win the, or she is going to have to win the pot only about a quarter of the time to, uh, to justify calling. So you don't need that many bluffs. That said, I kind of suspect, well, I don't know. I mean, I think that given your read that she's like overfolding to to a flop bet or or over c betting the flop, you should be check raising the flop pretty aggressively. It's not clear to me whether you actually would be because I mean you end up having a hand that's like a very defensible flop check raise even from a non-exploitive perspective. So you know I think it's worth considering like would you have stuff like queen jack of clubs in your range or could she reasonably expect you to? And that's the sort of stuff that would you know give you incentive to use a larger bet size and still get called by hands like black kings. So I think in theory you should have plenty of potential bluffs available to you here and um probably want to use a slightly larger size. I also think this is a spot where you want to be pretty polarized with your bet. Um, I don't think you're that interested in betting stuff like pocket nines right now. So I think you can just kind of be betting like 
sets, flushes, and bluffs um, can, can be your betting range and maybe not even all the sets. So I, I think it's likely that a somewhat larger bet is going to be good here. Not hugely different, but maybe like 60K instead of 45 or whatever. Um, I, I think the villain has incentive to still put more money in the pot. And um, although I guess even betting 42.5K, we still end up with 175 in the pot. And our hero is going to have like a hundred behind so i guess this is still a bet size that enables a pretty clean river shove um yeah with, with deeper stacks i think a larger bet size is better now that i'm thinking more about the the stack sizes i guess this is a, a pretty good bet size actually um or i'm, I'm maybe yeah, I'm, I'm i'm on board let's just put it there i'm on board uh villain calls pot is 175k Zach says, at this point, I believe she still has overpair sets, top pair with a redraw, and flushes. That sounds about right to me. River is the seven of hearts. Not exactly what we wanted to see, since it uh, both demotes the hero's hand to the third nuts and has the hero blocking the fourth nuts, which is a pretty big problem. So the board now, ten of hearts, three of hearts, five of clubs, deuce of hearts, seven of hearts. Zach says, with just over 90k left in my stack, I felt it would be terrible to shove now, as I believe that I fold out all worse hands and only get called by better. I resentfully check, knowing she is most likely going to shove with anything she has. She takes about 15 seconds before shoving. I go into a deep tank. Um, it's not obvious to me that she's going to shove with anything that she has. It's worth asking, you know, suppose that she got this far with, you know, you, you put like all over, over pairs in her range. So suppose she got this far with black aces. How much incentive does she have to shove the river with, with black aces? You know, what, what would she be trying to get you off of? Uh, I'm not necessarily saying it's, it's wrong, but it's worth thinking it through. Um, maybe she gets you off of sets. Maybe she gets you off of a lower flush. Um, that's possible uh i think like she would need i mean really those are like the weakest hands she could have and she probably should be turning those into bluffs but let's think about some other hands in her range what if she has a set you know what if she has like pocket tens that doesn't strike me as a hand that should be shoving when when you check i'm kind of i'm thinking of this category in part or i'm thinking of this comment in part um in the context of your comment on the flop where you said like you expected her to fold to the flop check raise i think you might be making some like overly broad uh it's like i guess like sweeping generalizations about your opponent's play and it would probably benefit you to think in a slightly more nuanced way so rather than thinking like oh it's just so easy for her to shove because i check um I mean, I guess I would say a few things. Like, first, there should be some hands in her range that aren't really, that are too strong to turn into bluffs, but aren't strong enough to bet for value. Right? These would be the kings in the ace-king queen game. Uh, for those of you who have read Play Optimal Poker, or otherwise are familiar with the ace-king queen game, and um, you should be able to beat those hands by letting the action go check, check. Uh, the other thing that Zach says, I guess I'll just read you the rest of Zach's comments, which include the, um, the results. He says, I believe that villain shoves everything that she makes it to the river with since my check basically confirms I do not have the nut flush. Um, actually, that was all I wanted to read. So <laughs> does your check confirm that you don't have the nut flush? I don't think it needs to. I mean, if we kind of think about this, like if it's true that she's going to shove anything if you check, that gives you 
I mean, why would you ever bet the nut flush? <laughs> like, if she's always going to shove when you check, of course you shouldn't bet the nut flush. Then, like, you get her stack 100% of the time by checking. So, I mean, I think it's, like, obviously, in the equilibrium can't be that you always bet the nuts and she always shoves when you check. Like, that, that just can't be the equilibrium. Um, you probably are supposed to have some combinations of... Uh, two hearts um or you probably should have some better hands in your checking range including possibly some nut combinations in your checking range in order to uh induce shoves from from your opponent i'm not entirely sure off the top of my head what you want to block and not block like on the one hand having the king of hearts yeah i mean i guess you just so I'm not sure, like, so I'm thinking about, like, ace-king of hearts, which maybe you just threw that preflop anyway, but, like, whether or not that's a good river checking hand. On the one hand, like, you're blocking her most obvious call, um, which makes it unappealing as a shove, but king of hearts might also be a hand that shoves for value into your check, especially if she feels comfortable assuming you don't have the ace of hearts in your hand when you check. So, um, you know, whether or not that's a good blocker card to have i'm not sure but i do think just like again reaching that hasty conclusion of like oh i couldn't possibly have the ace of hearts in my hand since i check i i don't think that's that's correct and or like if it is correct it should be because she's not actually shoving everything like she is shoving everything when you check then you should be checking the ace of hearts so setting that aside um i do think checking this hand is good i don't think anything good happens as a result of shoving with it um to some degree this is just like why it sucks to be out of position like you got an unlucky river you're out of position um this is another one of those river call spots where like we can do the same analysis we did in the previous hand we can ask first do we beat anything in her value range i think no um i don't think she should be shoving like lower flushes is another like if she has a nine eight of hearts or something like that's another example of a, a hand that is too good to turn into a bluff but not good enough to bet for value so I think there should be some hands like that that you beat by letting it go check check when she shoves i think she should be polarized to either a bluff or a hand that can beat queen ten of hearts so i don't think you're beating anything in her value range do you have blockers um yeah i think you do you block ace queen of hearts king queen of hearts ace ten of hearts like she just it's not that she needs two hearts to shove the river but um you know some chunk of her some chunk of her range that has an ace or heart or king of heart in it also has um, a lower heart and you don't block any of her bluffs so you know a hand like queen jack with the jack of hearts is not a hand that's shoving as a, a bluff if she even got here that that far with it so I, I don't think you block any bluffs i think you do block like you have a slight blocker effect on her, her value range it's kind of hard to have blockers on monotone boards because you can't block the ace of hearts without having the ace of hearts in your hand you can only block a secondary card that's going to have like a pretty weak effect on the amount of ace of hearts in her range but i do think that the two cards in in your hand have that effect so i mean the equilibrium play probably is the call with this certainly if you think she's shoving with anything you should be calling um i mean you're you just don't need to win that often when you're facing a shove of like half the pot you only need to win about a quarter of the time if she's shoving her full range like you definitely beat more than half of her range it's just a question of like whether like how much of that she shoves as a bluff now her actual strategy should be to shove a more balanced and polarized range in which case you should be close to indifferent to calling with your hand but calling should be slightly profitable i think that should be the the equilibrium here um 
This is X says, after thinking it through, I believe she could have aces or kings, ace 10, or ace heart, king heart. I don't know if she is sick enough to turn a set into a bluff, which, I mean, I guess I, I was saying I agree with that concept, but it's not consistent with the just, you know, thinking she's going to shove anything when you check. Anyways, that continues. After the clock was called on me, I still didn't know what to do, so I decided to let the time expire as I tried to get one last read off of her and uh, settle with my 25 blinds that I had left as we neared the money. Um, I spoke to her after the session, and she told me she had King of Hearts 10, and she seemed to be truthful in our conversation. However, after thinking about it, I believe that I made a mathematical mistake and that she had plenty of bluffs in that spot to justify calling given the tremendous pot odds I was getting. I realized that I forgot to take SPR into account at all in the hand, which made my rear decision that much more painful. Um, is there something I should have done differently earlier in the hand so I was not essentially committed to the pot by the river and still felt forced to fold when the, pos- when the worst possible river card comes? Um, no, and I don't think that's a good way of analyzing the hand. Like, I think it's good that you recognize this is one of the worst possible rivers, and the fact that it's one of the worst possible rivers means that it's not something you need to plan around. Like, it's okay. It's, it's even okay to end up being exploitable on certain very bad rivers. I mean, there's enough heart rivers that maybe you do need to be planning around them a little bit, but let's just take a, an extreme example. Like, let's say that for some reason, like, the Deuce of Hearts were a much worse card than any other card in the deck for you. And, you know, the deuce of hearts comes and then you find yourself in a bad spot. I, you know, I, I wouldn't look back on that and say, oh, is there something I should have done to make sure the deuce of hearts is not such a bad card for me? Anything that you might have done earlier in the hand is going to have costs for you on other river cards that aren't the deuce of hearts. So the question is, you know, in order to avoid being exploitable on this particular river, should I do something that's going to cost me value on every other river just so that I can't be exploited on, on this one river. And generally the answer to that is no. Like it's it you just have to accept that like when the worst card comes, sometimes you're just going to be in a bad spot. Um and that's okay because that card doesn't come that often. The more like you know so in this case when you're already looking at uh three hearts on the board and two in your hand, there's only eight hearts remaining in the deck, but that's not a trivial amount of um, hearts. So, like, heart rivers are something you do kind of need to be prepared for because there's eight of them. Um, so, anyway, is it the worst possible river? I mean, it's one of the 25% of worst possible rivers or 20% of worst possible rivers. It's not that anomalous of, of an outcome. Uh, so, I think, like, the... The, the frequency with which a particular like bad card could come determines the extent to which you need to plan around it earlier in in the hand um i mean in this case it's like yeah i mean it's a it's not it's not even really the worst river card for your range this is the worst river card for your hand uh your opponent shouldn't know that you have queen ten of hearts if anything like the difference would be how you play other hands in your range on the river. <laughs> like that if, if you're concerned about her, for instance, exploiting you by turning a set into a bluff, then you should be checking some slightly stronger hands where, you know, if you shove with like, let's say that you have King 10 with the King of Hearts yourself. If you shove that hand on the river, you're maybe thinking she's not going to call with a set, but if you check and she's going to sub- shove a set, that would give you some incentive to check that hand. So, you know, it might be worth considering when you have other hands in this situation, maybe you should be checking those sometimes if you really think she's going to bluff exploitably often. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the case. Like, I don't know that I would say that you're committed exactly um, or that you should be like, that you want to avoid being committed here. I mean, you're just you're going to have other hands in your range that are that are folding. Like maybe you have some hands that were bluffing the turn and then are are checking to fold, or you have sets in your range and those going to be checking to fold the river. So it's not that you're just like committed 
with any hand because of the amount of money that's in the pot. I mean, the reason you're calling here is just that you're getting a good enough price and you have some decent blockers and calling should be slightly more profitable than than folding. I mean, I think, again, like you're kind of making the assumption that she's just like doing a really exploitable amount of bluffing here. And I mean, if you think that's true, then yeah, calling is really profitable. But it's good to recognize that that's an, that's an assumption that you're making. It's not something that she's required to do or necessarily is doing. And I don't think it's the case that you're just like committed to call with any hand that can beat a bluff. I think this is like a particularly good bluff catcher. And even then is only a slightly profitable call. So uh, hopefully that makes sense. Thank you for writing, Zach. Thanks for listening. It was nice getting an opportunity to meet you. Okay, final question from William is one I am excited to answer because uh, it actually interacts with some of the concepts that are going to be in Play Optimal Poker 2, the book that I am currently working on that I hope to have out in 2020. Uh, This is excerpted from a longer email from William. I'm just going to skip to the part uh, towards the end where he gets to the particular question that I'm most interested in. Um, But essentially, he does some math and comes to the conclusion that, uh, well, basically, he put together this formula that helped him to determine um, what size bet you should make given your uh, value to bluff frequency. And he said, uh, for some reason, or in, in, in his analysis, he, he, he came to this conclusion, uh, for some reason, when you have more bluff combos than value, the pop bet percent went negative. After a comment in response on Stack Exchange, I realized why that is. No matter how much you bet as a percentage of the pot, the villain's call will always be less than or equal to 50% of the pot. So by extension, if you bluff more than 50%, the villain has a profitable call and should call it 100%. So my initial thought then is, well, I should just never have a range where my bluffing percent is more than 50%. But I can think of a few scenarios where that is probably not the case. Monotone boards for one, bubbles of tournaments are probably another. I was curious to your thoughts on this subject and thought it might make a good topic for the strategy segment of the podcast. So on the one hand, I got a good rule of thumb, don't bluff more than 50% of the time. But on the other, I now need to consider when to ignore this rule. Okay, so first thing, um, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't. I don't just want the answer to my questions to be read my book, uh, but this is a topic that I discuss explicitly in Play Optimal Poker, the the original book that is out now. And in fact, you can see a chart where I'm looking at in a situation where you're betting a polarized range on the river. Um, it is true that essentially you're you're. If we were to graph bluffing frequency and bet size relative to the pot, the bluffing frequency is an asymptote that never quite reaches 50%. Um, so, you know, if you're betting a million times the pot, then bluff should be like 49.9999999% of your of your range, and you should still have like slightly more value than than bluffs. That's the equilibrium strategy. In other words, that's if you're trying to play in a way that your opponent can't exploit. That's also a concept that's specific to the river. In fact, um, talking about bluffs or value at all is kind of a specific river situation or or something that you can only 
do with perfect accuracy on the river. Before the river, it's rare that you're going to have a hand that is, you know, 100% to win no matter what the opponent calls with, and you know, or a hand that would 0% to win no matter what the opponent calls with, which is in you know, sort of like when we're when you're doing this kind of math of of like a of, of value to bluff um frequency and trying to make your opponent indifferent to calling with a pure bluff catcher like that kind of stuff really only applies on the river when hand values are static so before the river um those concepts like the concepts still apply the exact math is is different before the river because often you're betting hands that have some chance of winning even when they're like even if they're bluffs they have a chance of winning when they're called and your opponent's hands that he's calling with are still going to have some chance of winning even if they're not currently ahead they might have some chance of improving or they might have some chance of you know fluffing you on the river like there's lots of like things get complicated before the river so like this kind of um thinking in terms of like value to, to bluff ratio and especially that the kind of simple formula of how to make your opponent indifferent to calling with a pure bluff catcher that applies most directly on the river and as we get further away from the river it's not going to be as mathematically precise like the concept of wanting to have hands that you sort of think of as value hands and hands that you think of as bluff hands and thinking they should be in a certain proportion to each other that's true but um it like the the exact math of it can be different before the river the other thing that can change, and this is something that I'm going to look at it in depth in part two of Play Optimal Poker, but you can also find elsewhere, like Mathematics of Poker has a discussion of this. Um, even if you were betting a perfectly polarized range on the turn, like if we imagine the ace-king-queen game stretched out over multiple betting rounds where hand values are perfectly static, they're not they're not going to change, but the imposition player gets to, to bet multiple times, or the, the player with the polarized range gets to bet multiple times, then you actually can have a bluffing uh, frequency that's greater than 50%. And that's because even with your bluffs, um, you might still win the pot. Even though they have no chance of drawing out, they could win the pot by betting again on the river. This is a concept that's often called leverage. So the idea is that if you know that you're going to be able to bet a polarized range on the river, then all of the hands that are going to bet the river can also bet the turn. And then you get to do even more bluffing on the turn. So you're going to have a range that bluffs the turn and gives up on the river. And you're also going to have a range that bluffs the turn and keeps bluffing the river. And the that river bluffing strategy, the hands that the bluff turn, or sorry, the hands that bluff river are going to have to be in in the right proportion to your your value betting range using this formula that William's talking about. So you know, if you're making a pot size bet, you're going to need one bluff for every two value hands on the river. But then when you're playing on the turn, you have to think ahead and say, okay, so I know on the river I'm going to bet. Uh, all these value hands plus half as many bluffs, that's going to be my river betting strategy. And if I want to bet those hands on the river, then uh, I'm going to bet them on the turn because I know that they're going to be at least break-even bets on the river. Right? The, those, those river bluffs are not losing money. They might be making money if your opponent uh, plays badly at equilibrium. They're, they're breaking even. The only way they'd be losing money is if your, your opponent were doing something exploitive, in which case you know, you'd want to have an exploitive response to that. But if you don't know what your opponent's strategy is going to be, then it's going to be at least not money losing for you to shove all those hands on the river. So you're going to bet all those hands on the turn. And then in addition, you need to develop a, a range that bluffs turn and gives up on the river. And so your turn bluffing range, if you count both the hands that are going to bluff turn give up river and also hands that are going to bluff turn bluff river, then 
that may well end up exceeding 50%, especially if you carry that analysis forward again to the flop and you say, okay, well, now I know on the turn, I'm going to have all these bluffs. I'm going to have the hands that bluff twice plus the hands that bluff turn and give up river. And all of those hands need to bluff the flop. And then in addition, I get to have additional bluffs on the flop that just bluff once on the flop and then give up. Uh, so if you know that you're going to be betting a polarized range across multiple streets, you get to do a disproportionate amount of bluffing on earlier streets. The extent to which that's actually the case depends a lot on the board texture and the ranges that are involved, and you don't always know ahead of time that this is going to be the, the case. It kind of depends on how capped your opponent's range ends up being, and that's often a function of what the action was and, and what the cards are. This is something I go into more detail on in play optimal poker too. Uh, but that's like that's the main case where even at equilibrium you'd end up having a bluffing frequency greater than 50%. Uh, as for the circumstances William is talking about, um, bubbles of tournaments are a sort of specific case where you actually, like even if your opponent knows that you're bluffing at a higher than 50% frequency, um, they can't necessarily call you because the reward to them for calling is not as great as the penalty for, um, or sorry, the, the reward for calling and beating a bluff is not as great to them as the penalty for calling and uh, losing to a to a value hand. So in these situations where like ICM becomes a factor, you can still apply um, game theory concepts. You just need to consider your opponent's actual payoffs. So you can't treat it as, well, you know, if I'm making a pot size bet that's all in for my opponent, I'm, ris you know, he's risking one pot to win two pots, and therefore he needs to call one third of the time to break even. That because that's not actually what he's what he's risking. Um, you know, he you have to think about the actual cash value of his stack, and ICM is sort of a way of converting the tournament chips into thinking about what they're worth in terms of cash value. But you know, the truth is that calling and winning is going to be worth a good deal less than two pots to him and calling and losing might cost him a good deal more than than one pot so the actual like pot odds like the effective pot odds that he's getting measured in terms of the cash value of his stack are going to be much less good than two to one and so you want to be bluffing at a frequency that um makes him indifferent given his actual incentives uh, which, which are not necessarily just a function of the the pot odds that he's getting in terms of chips they're a function of the the cash value of a stack if he calls and wins versus the cash value of a stack if he calls and loses which you know in this case would be zero i guess and then you have to compare that because you're also not like i guess what's really going on here is that folding in that situation has an ev of greater than zero like generally we think of treating folding as, as having an ev of zero but in this case and this is kind of what icm is like your opponent can fold and still go into the money so you're not really trying to make ev you're not trying to make calling have an ev of zero for him you have to make calling have an ev equal to the ev of folding and if folding means he can fold into the money then folding can be pretty valuable for him like on the bubble of a tournament for instance and that can mean that you have to be bluffing at a really high frequency like much greater than 50 percent before calling actually becomes more profitable to your opponent than folding does so it's not that calling isn't plus ev it's just that it's not as plus ev as folding and the the idea of a plus EV fold is something that can only exist in a tournament. In a cash game, we wouldn't see a plus EV fold. You don't make money by folding in cash games. But in tournaments, you can make money by folding and, and moving up a pay ladder. And there are those like high ICM kind of situations like the tournament, like the bubble of a tournament where that applies. The other situation that William mentioned is monotone flops. And here, 
I think William's just making an exploitative assumption, which is fine if you're you know comfortable making that assumption. But you know what you have to be assuming is that your opponent is folding at a greater frequency than they should on those boards. Like a strategy where you you know just do like a ton of bluffing because the flop is monotone, your opponent could exploit by like calling very aggressively and or check raising. Um, so you know there's there are going to be exploits to to betting there. Now whether or not you should bluff at a greater than fifty percent frequency is is going to depend on whether you think your opponent is actually going to do those things. Like if you think that your opponent will overfold the flop, then then this whole formula goes out the window. Like this is a formula for making your opponent indifferent to calling. If you are already going to predict what your opponent is, is going to do, or you think you can predict a mistake your opponent's going to make, then you don't want to be messing with this formula in the first place. You want to be thinking about how do I exploit my opponent's play. And this is a concept another concept that I discuss in in the first volume of Play Optimal Poker, which is when to be thinking in terms of uh, game theoretically optimal or equilibrium strategies, and when to be thinking in terms of exploiting your opponents. And once you're making an assumption about your opponent's play, then you're in exploitative territory. If you're not going to be making any assumptions about your opponent's play, then you don't get to just automatically bluff at a disproportionate frequency because the board is monotone. I mean, monotone boards do tend to be more static in the sense that the nuts, like if you if you flop the nuts on a monotone board, it's relatively unlikely, like most of the time your hand is still going to be the nuts on the river. Uh, if the board pairs, it won't be true anymore. Straight flushes become possible, it won't be true anymore. But most of the time when you flop the nuts on a monotone board, you'll still have the nuts on the river. So these are boards where hand values are more static. They may be boards where... Um, leverage applies it is but there's also weird blocker effects on monotone boards so like the main time that you can be sure your opponent doesn't have the nuts is when you have the ace like let's say the board is all hearts you have the ace of hearts in your hand right now now you're in a situation where you can be sure your opponent doesn't have the nuts and um you can do some bluffing in that situation the thing is like the ace of hearts is still a pretty good hand like you're not really bluffing like you have a pretty good chance of either already having the best hand or improving to the best hand when you bet the ace of hearts on a three heart flop so i mean part of the reason it's a safe bluff is because you're sure your opponent doesn't have the nuts the other part is that like you could easily improve to the nuts so there's a lot that's going on there besides just bluff to value frequency and and that's the real the complication with all this is that this is a formula that's of pretty limited usefulness um and in particular when you're thinking about betting ranges before the river there's other stuff going on besides just making your opponent indifferent to uh, calling or folding when he has a, a bluff catcher. You know, sometimes you have strong hands that still benefit from your opponent's folds. I mean, this is true on monotone boards. If you flop a set and you can get your opponent to fold a live flush draw, even though you're ahead of that hand, you still benefit from the fold. And that's not something this formula takes into account because it's not something that's relevant on the river. Uh, so sorry if that was a little all over the place. There was a lot that I wanted to get out there, but I hope that you found that helpful. I hope everyone found that helpful. And uh, as always, thank you for listening. If you have questions you want to hear answered, podcast at thinkingpoker.net. Devotion of a car, the light of the fair passage of a bill.